Would you pray with me? Um, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it actually gives us real confidence and real assurance uh, that those who are in Christ uh, can be renewed and can experience that renewal. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you'd renew us today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been um, looking through the book of Ephesians. We've been studying through, so far, uh, chapter 1. And um, what we've been seeing in it is that renewal is possible for everyone. Uh, that actually anyone who seeks it can find it. Um, and uh, what we've also discovered is not only is it possible for everyone to be renewed, but it's actually possible for everyone to bring renewal to other people's lives. Um, and so that's what we've been seeing. And what we saw last week is that renewal actually comes from the outside in. And so that if you really want to experience renewal, uh, it's not something that you look in to find it, but actually you look outside of you. And what we saw last week is that you look up, you look up to the Lord, and as you look to him, uh, he brings you renewal. And the passage we're going to say, uh, look at today actually shows us that Christians, not only do we have this hope for renewal, but actually our hope for renewal is absolute. It's certain. Uh, before we get to that, let me show you what I mean when I say uh, hope that is certain. Um, so I suppose most of you know that I am a diehard, lifelong Cubs fan. Uh, I was sort of just born into that. And uh, if you know anything about the Chicago Cubs, you know that we had a really long drought without winning a championship. It was 108 years. And so what that meant is the only person that I ever knew in my family who uh, was alive the last time they won it was my grandmother, who was about one year old uh, the last time. Uh, and she's been dead for 20 years. So, uh, and so anyway, that's, uh, that's sort of what it means. It's a big deal to my family that our team would actually win the championship. And so in 2016, uh, we went all the way to the World Series. And if you don't know, it, it's a seven-game series to win. And so by the end of uh, game four out of seven, the team we were playing Cleveland, they were up three games to one, which means they only needed one more game to, to win the whole thing. And we needed to win three more. We couldn't lose any more games. Like We had to win every game uh, to win the World Series. So there's really no room for, for error. So the Cubs win game five. And then they win game six. And now we get to game seven. Winner takes all. The series is tied three to three. And my dad and I, is, uh, I'm watching it in England. My dad's watching it in Florida. And we're texting back and forth through the whole game. Uh, like every good play, we're like, oh, wasn't that amazing? And you know, we're just kind of texting back and forth through the whole thing. Um, and mostly they're texts of hope. You know, it's like, oh, if we can just hold on to this lead, if we can just hold on to that. But then every once in a while, you know, Cleveland would score. And then our hopes would be dashed again. And so... The Cubs are winning through seven innings, and um, those texts are flying back and forth. And then in the bottom of the eighth inning, Cleveland scores three runs, tying the game. So the game is now tied, and more texts with Dad, and hope begins to wane. Hope begins to, to sort of fall apart uh, as the game is tied. And it's still tied after nine innings, which means we go into extra innings. And then there's a rain delay, a 17-minute rain delay, and so we're, we're sitting there just waiting for this to come in the top of the 10th innings the Cubs score two more runs so we're up we're winning we're up eight to six it's gonna happen we're full of hope uh and hope is building but you know anything can happen we get to the bottom of the 10th inning and all we have to do is keep them from scoring that's it all we have to do keep them from scoring and then Cleveland scores a run so now it's eight to seven hope is beginning to fall apart. My hope is getting less and less optimistic. One run and they tie it and we keep playing two runs and it's over. It could be another 108 years before we ever get here again. 
Well, now we're down to the last out. We just need one more out, and we've won the World Series. And I'm optimistic, but I'm also a Cubs fan, so I know that this could go the other direction. And so I have this hope, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Pitcher stands on the mound, working out what pitch to throw. He's taking his time. He's really thinking about it, maybe trying to ice the batter a little bit. And I'm waiting in eager anticipation for the play. And then easily a full minute and a half before the pitch is thrown, one out still to go. Will we win? Will we not win? Ding! I get a text from my dad. It comes across the screen where I'm watching the game. It says, Cubs win! 108 years, Cubs win! And I realized in that moment that because I was watching it online and in a totally different country, I was about a minute and a half behind the actual game. And so my dad's a minute and a half in the future to where I am. But for that minute and a half, that minute and a half, my hope changed from an uncertain optimism, right? I hope we do it. I hope, we, I'm pretty sure we're gonna get the out. I'm pretty sure it changed from a certain, uh, an uncertain optimism to a certain insecure hope. I knew for a whole minute and a half that we had won. We already had victory. I didn't know how we were gonna do it. I just knew that it was certain. So did you see there's two kinds of hope there? Before I got the text, it was only an uncertain optimism. But then after the text, it was certain, it was guaranteed. I knew that we were gonna win. And that's, by the way, the difference between the English word hope, the one that you and I use all the time, and the Bible's word for hope. The English word for hope, it's actually, it's too weak. And here's the, the dictionary definition of the English word. Uh, here it is. It says, the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. So it's a feeling that what I want is going to happen. Uh, another uh, definition, to feel that something desired may happen. So to feel strongly that it might happen. That's, the, that's our English word hope. So the English word, it's a feeling. In other words, it's an uncertain optimism. I hoped every year of my life that the Cubs would win the World Series. I was even hoping as we got to the, the, you know, the bottom of the 10th inning of Game 7 because I didn't know. I didn't know for sure that it was going to happen. Victory wasn't a guarantee. I was hoping all the way up to that moment that my dad texted me. And so it was uncertain optimism that we would win. And I, I mean, I guess a lot of people would say it's unguided, uncertain optimism, or uh, misguided, uncertain optimism. So the English word hope means uncertainty. So if I say to you, is it going to happen? You'll say, I hope so. And what do you mean by that? You mean, I don't know. You mean, well, I'm uncertain. I don't, I don't know if it's going to happen. Well, the Bible's word hope actually means almost the opposite. It means certainty. It means absolute. It means guaranteed. It means security. Instead of uncertain optimism, it's a certain guarantee. And so every time you see the English word hope in the Bible, you need to fill it in with the Bible's definition of hope. And probably the most famous use of the Bible's word for hope is uh, in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, which says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so biblical hope is life-shaping certainty about the future. Biblical hope actually, what you saw in that Hebrews 11 verse, it actually produces faith. And so if you have the Bible's hope, that means that you can live right now in light of a certain future. Now, I only got to live that way for about a minute and a half of my life, but it was a glorious minute and a half. 
I could live in that minute and a half in the certainty of victory, even though it hadn't happened yet. I could celebrate and enjoy the victory. And I could do that because I had real hope. I had a guaranteed hope, a certain hope. Well, now that we understand that, it's, it's important to see this from uh, last week's passage. Last week in verse 12, it says that a Christian is someone who has put their hope in Christ. That's what it says in verse 12. A person who has put their hope in Christ. And their hope for what? Well, verse 13, it says it's their hope for salvation. Now, which hope is the Bible talking about there? Is it the uncertain optimism or is it the absolute certain guarantee? Well, of course, it's the certain guarantee. It's, it's the Bible's definition for hope. And so what it means to be a Christian is to put your hope in an absolute assured future, which means you can live today in light of that certain future. In fact, everything about your life today can be lived in light of a certain future that's coming. Now, that's not saying that a Christian doesn't have doubts, by the way, or that a Christian doesn't have questions or can't doubt or can't question. What it's saying is that the object of a Christian's hope is certain. So it doesn't remove your doubts. It's just saying the object of a Christian's hope is certain. And in fact, this passage, I'll show you later, it's going to show us what to do with our doubts. Uh, but for now, it's enough to know that doubts, doubts come from the inside. Doubts come from your fears. They come from your anxiety. They come from your ignorance. But what we're going to see, and this is our first point, is that hope comes from the outside in. That's what we've been seeing all along. That all the things that we have as Christians come from the outside in, and hope comes from the outside in, not from the inside out. And so do you have doubts? Are you a Christian and you're doubting? That's, that's normal. That's a normal thing. You should expect that. But know that those are coming from the inside. But as a Christian, what you have is a hope that comes from the outside in. And if we let it, it will go all the way in and it will begin to cast out our doubts. And so that's our first point. I, actually, I have four points today. Sorry to throw you off, but there are four. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to go any longer than usual, which some of you are thinking that is longer than you should. But I, I, I don't think I'll go longer than usual. So here, I'll give you the four points now. Number one, Christian hope comes from the outside, but it reaches all the way in. Hope comes from the outside, but it reaches all the way in. Number two, Christian hope is anchored in a power beyond all power. It's anchored in a power beyond all power. Thirdly, Christian hope is gotten through the simplest of means. It's gotten through the simplest of means. And then fourthly, when you have this hope, renewal is inevitable. When you have this hope, renewal is inevitable. So let's go to the first one. Christian hope comes from the outside, but it reaches all the way in. Um, this theme of renewal and now hope coming from the outside in, it keeps coming up each week. And I, I hope, I guess in the English definition, I hope it's starting to sink in. I hope it's starting to, uh, to sink in because it's one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians, that everything that makes a Christian a Christian comes from the outside in. It's something received. And the reason for that, we'll see when we get to chapter two, is that almost everything that keeps someone from becoming a Christian comes from the inside out. We'll begin to see that next week, that any, almost anything that keeps someone from being a Christian comes from the inside out. And everything that makes you a Christian comes from the outside in. Now, what we see in verse 15 and 16 is that this is either a prayer itself or it's a description of a prayer that Paul prays for the, the Ephesian church. He says he hasn't stopped giving thanks and remembering them in his prayers. 
And then in verses 17 and 18, we begin to see the content of his prayers. Uh, What is he actually asking from God on their behalf? Well, let's look at it. Verse 17. Uh, You can read along with me. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. There's two prayers in there. He says, I keep asking for something, and then he says, I pray for something. Now, what's he doing? Well, he's praying for things that are external to them to become internal. He asked God, his first prayer is to give them something. He asked God to give them something they don't have, and then his second prayer is to help them see something they don't see. That something external to them will become internal. And notice his first prayer in verse 17. What's the first thing he asked God to give them? He says, I keep asking that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, he's asking that God would give them the spirit who is wisdom and revelation. What does that mean? Well, look at the first part of the prayer he, where he names God. Look at what he calls God. He calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. Now that's Trinitarian language. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about the Trinity, but uh, you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the glorious Father, and you have the Spirit all wrapped up in there. But our question is, what is the wisdom and revelation that the Spirit gives? And we actually find it in the name that Paul uses for God the Father. In our translation, it says the glorious Father, but that translation doesn't fully catch the nuance that Paul uses in the original language. The nuance is something like this, uh, the Father who reveals his glory. That would be a better translation. It just doesn't read very well. So they say the glorious Father. So the Father who reveals his glory. And so what is it that the Spirit is giving? Well, he's giving revelation of the Father's glory. In other words, it's what we talked about last week, that Paul is asking that God's Spirit would cause the Ephesian believers to look up, to worship. That God would give them the Spirit who reveals his glory. And so the first thing that comes from the outside in is God's spirit who leads you to worship. And then notice the result of that worship. Look at the last part of verse 17. It says, so that, so that, so why is Paul praying this? Why does Paul want them to receive the spirit of revelation and wisdom? It's so that you may know him better. Now there's a bit of practical theology we don't have time to get into, but I'll just simply say that when we do gather to worship, essentially the part of the service where we are looking up, where we're singing about God, or I guess at this point uh, in history, we're listening to others sing about God and his glory. That's not just filler time. That's not just there to prepare you or to sort of pump you up for the sermon. It's there for the Spirit to use so that you would know the glorious Father better. That's why we sing. That's why we take time and look up and we reflect on who he is that we may know the glorious Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, better. And the Spirit is actually doing that in us and in our hearts during that time. Well, then notice the second prayer, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And again, this is something external to the Christian. 
It's not as if Christians are only Christians because they happen to be more hopeful people. You are not a Christian because you're a more hopeful person. And some of you are saying, yes, I know. (laughs) Christians are Christians because they are called to a hope. You've been called to a hope, it says. Called out of doubt, called out of rebellion, called out of wickedness and out of selfishness and out of pride to hope. That's what it says that you may know the hope to which you have been called. Now, we said that Christian hope comes from the outside, but not only that, it goes all the way in. And what do I mean by that? Well, here, the prayer is that the eyes of the heart will be enlightened. Now, it's not as if Paul needs an anatomy lesson. (laughs) It's obviously a metaphor. But look at where the hope is located. The first prayer is your mind. Spirit of revelation and wisdom, it's located in the mind. And then this one is that it's in the heart. It's, what is he talking about? He's talking about our inner being. He's talking about the inside. And do you know what that's saying? It's saying that not only is the Christian's hope external, that it comes from the outside, but when you let it in, it goes all the way in, into your heart, into your mind, into your very inner being. It, it actually begins to transform you then from the inside out. And so that's what Paul is praying is that this wisdom and this hope would come from the outside in all the way in. And so then what do you do with your doubts? Well, this text is telling us not to look in to find hope. It's not as if you kind of just dig in a little bit further to find it. But to look out or better yet to look up. Because if you only look in, of course, you'll end up with more doubt because hope isn't in there. Certain hope is found in the guarantee. It's found in something outside of you. Let me try and illustrate this in a way that shows you where your doubts fit in and how to overcome them. Uh, This illustration, it comes from, it's kind of an obscure place. It's from the introduction to a C.S. Lewis book called The Four Loves. And most people don't read introductions to books, but you should because sometimes there's good stuff in there. And here's one. Um, his illustration goes like this. He says, uh, I'm just reading it word for word. Uh, these aren't my words. He says, let us suppose that we are doing a mountain walk to the village, which is our home. At midday, we come to the top of a cliff where we are in space very near to it because it is just below us. So imagine you're standing on a cliff and you're looking down and there's the village. We could drop a stone into it. But as we are no craigsmen, we can't get down. We must go a long way around, five miles maybe. At many points during the detour, we shall statically be farther from the village than we were when we sat above the cliff, but only statically. In terms of progress, we shall be far nearer our baths and teas. At the cliff's top, we are near the village, but however long we sit there, we shall never be any nearer to our bath and tea. Do you see how that works? The image is like you're coming down a mountain. You can see it there, but to get there, you've got to go around the back of the mountain, and you've got to take the long way down. And what he's saying is, sure, but you might be able to see it from here, uh, but you're, you're no closer. You're actually further away than when you're on the backside of the mountain, right? When you're full of doubt, when you're questioning. But that's how this works. The village is, the village is there. You've seen it. You know it's there because it's your home. It's a certainty, and the road that you're on leads to that village. You know that it's there. 
Every sign posted along the way tells you that, but sometimes you're on the back side of the mountain. And of course, when you're on the back side of the mountain, doubt sets in. Worry sets in. But maybe you're on the wrong path. But as long as you keep going, even when you're on the back side of the mountain, you're closer to your hope than you were when you were further up the mountain and you could see it. Do you see how that works? And so the Christian's hope is a certain hope that comes from the outside in. And if we let it, it'll go all the way in and it will begin to cast out our doubts and our anxieties that the closer we step towards that hope, the less doubt we will feel. That leads us then to the second point. So a Christian, uh, Christian hope can do that. It can cast out doubt because here's point two. Christian hope is anchored in a power beyond all power. Christian hope is anchored in a power beyond all power. So if the hope isn't here and it's out there, then where is it? And what does the Christian anchor their hope? Um, well, very briefly, have you ever tried to do a job with the wrong tools or the wrong resources? Have you ever tried to do that? Jose should be nodding because when we put this thing up here, this canopy, uh, it was like a full-on comedy of errors. We spent easily an hour and a half trying to put it up with ropes and zip ties, and it just wasn't going to work. And then finally we're like, we just have the wrong tools. And so we went and got the right tools. And as soon as we got the right tools, it just went up. It was easy. Um, And uh, you know that frustration that you feel when you're doing that job and you can't get it done right because you don't have the right tools? Do you know what I'm talking about, Jose? Right? There were words in our heads and hearts that we didn't say outside because we're Christians and we're on a church property. Isn't that the same feeling you have when the thing or the person you hoped in let you down? Right? Someone's told you, I'll come through for you, and then they don't. You hope for this, and then they let you down. Well, we're asking the question, in what does the Christian anchor their hope? Well, the Christian's hope, we're going to see, is it's a risen and ascended hope. But before we get to that, look at verse 18 again. But this time, look at the end of verse 18 and into verse 19. So he's, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Right? Then he defines the hope in two ways. He gives two aspects of the hope. First, it's the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And secondly, his incomparably great power for us who believe. And so the Christian's hope is anchored in both the riches and the power. Not only is it anchored in a power beyond all power, but also in a riches beyond all riches. The point would have gotten too long if I had said that at the beginning when I said point two is both things Notice the way Paul talks about the riches. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, I want you to look really carefully at what he says. This is not actually talking about an inheritance that the Christian receives. He's not talking about your inheritance. This is talking about an inheritance that God the Father receives. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And here's what that's saying. It's saying that you, if you are a Christian, you are God's rich inheritance. That you are actually his inheritance. And Paul's prayer is that we might be enabled then to understand the glory and the honor and the wonder and the privilege of understanding that we are God's inheritance. Just think about the wealth of what it means to belong to God, to be his people. That what God wants is 
for us to fully understand and grasp and experience not what he is to us, but what we mean to him. Have you ever stopped to think about what you mean to him? That's what this is getting at. That we would so fully understand not what God means to us, but what we mean to him. And in that knowledge that we would find such certainty, such security, such absolute assured hope that God will do what he said he would, which is to secure salvation for all so that they could spend eternity with him. And so that's the first anchor, that we belong to God as his inheritance, that we are something that he values so deeply that he'll never give it up. Do you ever think about that? I mean, if you were promised a vast inheritance, you wouldn't do anything to put it in jeopardy, would you? And God the Father sees you as his glorious rich inheritance. That's what he thinks of you. He thinks that you're his riches. And therefore, he, with all security and certainty, will never lose you. He will never jeopardize that future. And so, therefore, what that means is your hope is secure. Your hope is secured in the riches of his glorious inheritance, which is you. And he'll never give it up. Well, then, secondly, the Christian's hope is anchored in a power beyond all power. And it's in this we see just how God then secures his inheritance. And so what's the hope? It's that we are God's riches and, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. And look at the rest of verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And so this is talking about a power that's beyond all power. It's the power to raise someone from the dead. But not only that, let's read on through verse 22. Listen to this as I read it. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. I mean, how, how do you even begin to sum that up? Well, let me try. What Paul does here is extraordinary. He stacks up description after description after description of Jesus' power and authority over all things in order to show that the hope we place in God is anchored in a power beyond all power. And so here's what you see if you dig into these verses. The first thing you see in there is that God's power is manifested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he shows his power in raising Jesus from the dead. Literally, it says that God raised Christ from the dead ones. And so it's plural. He raised Christ from the dead ones, meaning Jesus is only the first to be raised. God's power isn't limited to a one-time resurrection. It's implied that God will do it millions and millions of times for every single individual Christian. Secondly, we see that God's power is manifested in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. 
says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly realms, which means, did you see this, that he's exalted above five already exalted things. And not just one notch above, but far above. The word that Paul uses there is somewhat of a made-up word. He, he needed a special word to express just how far above Christ is exalted. That word only shows up uh, three times in the entire New Testament. Twice in Ephesians, once in Hebrews, and it's only ever used to describe how infinitely exalted Jesus Christ is above all things. And so what's exalted? Well, rules are exalted. Authority is exalted. Power is exalted. Dominion is exalted. And any exalted name you can think, think of, be it Caesar or Zeus or Elizabeth or Biden, any name you can think to exalt, you name the name, not only today, but in the past and in the future, you name the name and it says that Jesus is exalted above it. And not just one notch but infinitely exalted above rule, authority, power, dominion, and name. And so what this is saying is that all the power God the Father has belongs to Christ. Try and name a power. Try and name a name. Jesus is infinitely exalted above it. Now, to be honest, it's not a power I think I'd like to be confronted with. It's the kind of power that would instantly make your heart race, your knees weak. It would actually have the potential to strike fear. And I've come across a strong power uh, a few times in my life. A few times I've stood on a train platform at the kind of station that, you know, very few trains stop. You know, just every now and again, a slow train stops to pick people up from there to take them to like a real train station. And I've stood on that platform before, and usually because they're small, they're you're doing well if the platform is 12 feet wide. But there's, remember, there's a line on either side that leaves about three feet so that you don't stand next to the tracks and fall in. So at best, you could be nine feet away from a train that's passing through. Which is fine if a train is coming in slowly in order to stop and pick up passengers, but some of the stations I've waited in are the kind, again, that most trains don't stop at. And so instead, you have these trains like flying through at 75 miles an hour. And the force and the power and the noise that they produce is immense. It's enough to almost knock you back. And I don't think I've ever felt more physically small or weak than in those moments. When that train comes through, it has more power, authority, dominion than any person on the platform. And yet that pain train pales in comparison to Christ and his infinite power, rule, authority, dominion, and his name. Because what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus Christ is a power that is above all power. And so it should terrify you. But I want you to see how he uses his power. Notice how he uses his power. Verse 22. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And then notice this phrase, which is his body. And do you know what that's saying? It's saying that if you're a Christian, he uses his power for you. It's saying that if you're a Christian, he uses his power for you. That little phrase isn't a throwaway line, which is his body. It's not just a throwaway line for color. When it says that the church is his body, it says that he will love and care for it the way that you love and care for your body. 
And just think about it. You do everything you can to not only keep your body from harm, but you care for it too, don't you? And what it's saying is if you're a Christian, then you're his body. Which means he's going to use all of his power, all of his authority, all of his rule, all of his dominion for you. And that's the certainty of our hope. That God uses this very same power for you to save you, to secure you as his inheritance. And so let's try and put this all back together. The Bible's word for hope means certain, secure, guaranteed. And that certain hope for the Christian comes from the outside in. And this hope is anchored in riches beyond riches and power beyond power that's exerted for you. So how do you get it? How do you get that power or that hope? How do you get a hope that's that powerful? Well, that's our third point. And these next two ones are very fast. So the third point is Christian hope is gotten through the simplest of means. So how do you get the hope? How do you get it? Well, you pray it in. Go back to verses 15 and 16 and think about what this passage is. It's a prayer, or at least it's a description of a prayer. And I want you to notice something. Paul clearly longs for the church to have this hope, to be filled with this hope. And so how do you get the hope? How do you get it in the first place? How do you become a Christian? Well, you pray it in. That means going before the Father and admitting that you don't have the hope. Admitting that you've turned away from him. Admitting that you've rejected him. Admitting that you've put your hope in other things. And then asking him to forgive you of your rejection of him. And then based on what Jesus Christ did for you when he died on the cross, that he would then give you this hope. That's the first way, and it's the simplest and most humble of ways. You pray a prayer. How do you get the hope you prayed in? But the way the hope continues to grow in you, the way you're filled with more and more hope, is through the same simple means. It's through a prayer. Just look at the passage. How does Paul help them get the hope? He prays. And do you know what that's telling us? It's telling us that this hope has gotten through the simplest of means, through something that you can do anytime, anywhere, through something that doesn't cost you any money, something that doesn't cost you much time, something that takes almost no physical effort at all. You get this certain hope anchored in vast riches and immense power through something as humble and feeble as a prayer. And so what is it that you do with your doubts? You pray them. And when the doubts spring up from the inside, you pray for God's resources from the outside to work their way into your mind and into your heart. Now let me get very practical for a minute because we'd be crazy not to stop for a minute and think practically how each one of us can get this hope. If it, the means to it are just so simple and so humble. Here's three very simple ways you can get the hope. Number one, ask someone to pray for you. Who's praying for you? Who prays for you? And ask them to pray this prayer for you. Ask that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you'd know God better. Ask them to pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you'd know the hope to which you've been called. So ask someone to pray this for you. Secondly, pray it for yourself. Pray. When you pray, ask God for these two things. And then thirdly, pray this for our church. Pray this that everyone in our church would experience this as well. So how do you get it? How do you get the hope you pray it in? The simplest, most humble of means. And then very briefly, just as briefly, maybe more briefly than our third point, let me show you from the passage what happens when you have this hope. Fourthly, when you have this hope, renewal is inevitable. And how is it that I can say that? How can I say that renewal is inevitable? 
Well, look again at verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, do you know what that's saying? It's saying that the Christian who has this hope is being filled with the fullness of Christ. And in the person of Jesus Christ is all the fullness of God's presence, his power, his authority, his rule, his dominion. We've seen earlier in the chapter that in Jesus Christ is God's pleasure and will and his glorious grace that he lavishes upon us. We've seen that in Jesus Christ is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All of that is in him. But remember, this verse also says that we are his body. Are you connecting what that's saying? It's saying that Christ's life flows into my life. We've been talking about this for at least the last six weeks. That what is Christ is mine, that his life flows into my life. If I'm a Christian, all that belongs to Christ flows from his life into my life. And if that's true, then boy, do I have hope. Not uncertain optimism, but a sure hope, a guaranteed hope. So what do we do with that? Well, let's take Paul's example and let's pray it in. Let's pray that that hope into our lives and let's pray that hope into each other's lives. Later this week, I'm going to send you an email with a few prompts of how to pray this hope into your life and into one another's lives. But I just, I just want to stop and pray it now. Let's want to stop and pray this now into our minds, into our hearts. And so let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better, to know your glory, to know your goodness, to know your kindness. Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we would know the hope to which you've called us. Hope that is secure and riches beyond riches and power beyond power. Lord, would you enlighten our hearts that we would know it. And I pray that as we know these things, as they sink into our minds, into our hearts, that it would begin to cast out our doubts, that it would cast out our fears, that we could live today in light of a secured, certain future hope. And as that happens, Lord, would you renew us? Would you make us new people? And we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.